churches, as I look back now, many, many years later, I did not realize being, you know, fresh out of seminary and very wet behind the ears and that sort of thing, that there would be people in church leadership that did not try to lead like Jesus. And what I mean by that is there were people, and I'm going to be honest with you, almost always men, who just had to have their way. And when they did not get their way, they would go on the attack, sometimes overtly and sometimes more subtly. And it was always couched in some form of the term, I just want what's best for the church. Now, I think I mentioned before that at a previous ministry, I would often, on my way over to our monthly church board meeting, I, I would often throw up my dinner on the way over there because I knew what was about to go down. It was going to be three hours of shouting and screaming and all sorts of stuff. And I was just too inexperienced at the time to really have a name for it, but looking back, I can just see that those boards were filled with people who were narcissists, uh, almost bordering sometimes on sociopathic in the way they acted toward one another. There was yelling, and there was threatening, and there was name calling. Does that sound like Jesus? Over-the-top, strong personalities that just could not, and they did not want to see another point of view. I remember when I was in Pennsylvania, one leader in the church there, looking at another one and simply saying, if you are for it, I'm against it. Except because it was in the hills of Pennsylvania, it sounded more like, if you're for it, I'm against it. <laughs> After many years of that in two churches, I sort of was just resigned to the idea that that just was the way it was. And probably one of the biggest reasons why at the end of 2000, I simply quit the ministry and went to working on computers. Some of you may not realize that, but I, I walked away from the ministry and I quit. I was not pastoring anymore. When the fateful day when Delta was found, especially I tried to hide from <laughs> Of course, we know that you all were to be back in to ministry with promises of large salaries and a spinning gold bull on stage. Part of what lured me back in was that Green Hill was so ironic by comparison to everything I'd ever experienced. Not perfect, because none of us are that. Well, except for Richard. <laughs> I have to say that he came and fixed my water heater. Yes, my wife was very happy I got a hot shower. She was even more happy that I got a hot shower. Not perfect, because of course none of us that, but people actually here wanted to get along and they wanted to learn to live more like Jesus. I mean, in fact, in fact, the, the first couple of years here, I was probably the biggest troublemaker. Um, and, and I'll tell you. I will confess that probably the first five to eight years I was here, I still got sick almost every time we were having worship. Even though literally no one has ever raised their voice in worship. Delvin has never threatened the pastor. <laughs> other than he was going to like, turn my guitar amp down or something. <laughs> Thanks, appreciate that. Everybody's got to be 
be service, right? <laughs> well, anyway, last week, Paul reminded us that, that we are all gospel citizens of the kingdom and of our King Jesus. And he gave us some measures, right, by which we can understand how well we are doing as gospel citizens. Are we unified in Christ despite our differences in other things? Are we fearless for the gospel despite whatever external struggles might come along? And when they do come along, are we willing to suffer for Jesus? If that's what's called for. And finally, are we humble? Do we see ourselves rightly in relationship to God and to other people? Now chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is going to expand on that idea of humility. Because it's going to show us how Jesus himself, despite being God in the flesh, models that humility in his incarnation. This got me thinking that Paul must really, really want us to see and understand how absolutely critical humility is because he sure spends an awful lot of ink just to drive this point home. And from my own experience and even in my own life, I can surely see that where there's a lack of humility, it is damaging to the cause of Jesus and often just plain embarrassing to ourselves uh, in a variety of ways. So what does Paul have to say about Jesus' humility? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, the first thing I want us to know here is that Paul tells us humility is an achievable group dynamic. Now, what do we mean by that? Look at verse 5 again. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, among yourselves tells us that humility is a group dynamic. It's relational. And it works best when everyone in the group has this attitude toward one another. Now remember, Paul already told us in the first part of chapter 2 that part of humility is being willing to make the interests of other people a priority. Now you know what? If you're alone on, a, on, on an island with only a volleyball for company, you don't really need humility. Right? Because it's just you and Wilson and just going. But if we're a group, and if in that group we are told that we're to look out for one another's interests, for other people's interests, we're to value their opinions even while holding our own, that we're to be a voice for those who have no voice or are too afraid to use their voice, then humility matters. Humility matters in the group. Because it's the only way we can do these things. You see, 20 years ago, 20-some years ago, all of been here? Easter will finish my 21st year. Okay. About 
We have lots of understanding about Jesus. When Paul is writing these words, they are laying down the scriptures so that we can someday develop that Christology. In other words, what I mean by all that is, when you look at the scriptures and you look at 2,000 years of church councils and debates and learning and divisions and all that kind of stuff, we can look back now and we can understand that in some sort of miraculous way, Jesus is both God and human joined in one person. So he can be both an appropriate sacrifice and a final sacrifice for sin. Come on, Lily. You realize the first several church councils in the early centuries of the faith all pretty much revolved around understanding what this talk, what these two verses are talking about. How is it that God, that Jesus and man are joined together somehow? What does it mean that he emptied himself? What does it mean that, that he, he was in the form of God but didn't hold on to God? What does it all mean? I mean, seriously, church first, what is it, the first seven church councils all pretty much had something to do with the issue of the whole idea of Jesus as God and Jesus as man at the same time. So when we read a verse like this, for me at least, it kind of messes with my head. Because when I'm talking about Jesus and I'm talking about God, I don't like phrases like form of God. Right? I don't like things like emptied himself. What does that mean? I feel like you guys, how many of you remember the super friends? Stan and Jana. Right? Wonder Twin Power. Activate. Form of a bucket of water. Shape of a peanut butter sandwich or whatever. <laughs> right? I always, I always felt Dan and Jane were just kind of like, like, why? Because that's Superman. You don't need Dan and Jane. And then they had that dog. Remember the dog's name was? The dog was useless. Anyway, some of you don't remember Dan and Jane, but that's all right. You'll notice nobody's tried to make a Dan and Jane movie yet. Yeah. The point is, we don't, we don't like words like that. Because we say, well, what do you mean form of Jesus? Form of God? Let's start with, let's start with form of God. Because when we think form, right, we think something that looks like something else, right? I'm out, well, I'm outside, and I look at it and go, look at that cloud. It looks like a dog. <laughs> now, I know the dog, I know the cloud isn't really a dog, right? But it's in the form of a dog. We don't start with a dog. But see, when we see that then in our English translations, and I go, form of God, I start to think, so Jesus sort of looks like God, but he's not really God. I actually like the NIV translation of this verse. Because in the NIV they translate it, who being in very nature God. It's not a direct translation, but, but it definitely gets the idea. It's the idea that Jesus and God are one and the same. They're the one and the same. And then we're told that despite Jesus being one and the same with God and the Spirit, He was willing to empty himself. Ah, uh, what does that mean? What did he empty himself of? Oh, so many answers and so many commentaries. Some say, for example, he emptied himself of his glory. Well, we 
we, we certainly know that while he was on earth, his glory was veiled, right? I mean, he didn't walk around all shiny. But what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration? Is not his glory revealed? He didn't give up his glory. God, God how, how, can, how can he give up something that's essential to his nature? It's not like, it's not like a light bulb. You can just turn the glory on and off. Whoop. I'm glorious today. Whoop. Not so much tomorrow. Doesn't work like that. It's part of his essential nature. Some say he emptied himself of his divine powers. Except then you read the Gospels. Right? Um, does Jesus heal people? Yeah, that sounds like a divine power. He knows the thoughts of those around him. He does. That definitely sounds like a divine power. Does he walk on water? Oh, yeah. I can't do that. That sounds like a divine power. He can go on and on, right? The, the Gospels are full of him exercising divine powers. We couldn't have done that. But see, I think they're trying to figure out what the word emptied means. But I think. The verse actually defines for us what they're trying to get at. And part of the problem is we do not, the word, the word in Greek there is, is from the root kenosis. And we don't have a good English word that matches that word. But I think we can get the answer to the problem when we look at what before and after emptied himself. We know Jesus is God, and we know therefore prior to his incarnation, he exists eternally with the Father and Spirit in perfect communion and harmony. But in order to affect our salvation, what does he do? He enters this world through Mary. Right? He's born of, 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 of a, a young virgin. He takes on flesh, and somehow, in a, in a way we do not fully comprehend because it's not explained to us, he joins together essential humanity and essential divinity in one person. And in this process, he does not come and demand his rightful obedience as God, nor does he use his divine powers and prerogatives to enforce his will and demand all bow down as he rightfully could. He could do that rightfully, couldn't he? He's God. Right? Could have walked up to those Pharisees and gone, bam! But instead, Paul tells us, using the same word as before, right? Before it said, in the form of God, which we realize really means just like God. Okay, same as God. It now says, using the same word, he took the form of a servant when he was born as a human. Now, if we understand that form of God means Jesus was in every way God before the incarnation, which he was. He was completely God before the incarnation. Then the form of a servant tells us that he is in every way a servant during his time on earth. And in fact, Jesus' own words reflect this. Because he says in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He even says it himself. He says, I came to serve, not be served. Jesus' humility is such that despite being God, despite being the eternal, all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, he is willing to become a servant to the very people who would put him on the cross so that those people could be redeemed from the curse of sin and death. That's what it means. Putting it all together, the 
emptying the kenosis really means that Jesus, who is God and was God from all eternity past, there's never a time that ever existed he wasn't God, was willing to humble himself by becoming a servant to bring about the redemption of his creation. In a move no one would have ever imagined, God not only becomes human, but human in the form of a servant, not as a king or as a ruler, as you might expect, not as Superman, but as a servant. In fact, what's amazing is if you think about this passage in the context of ancient Rome, and if you know anything about Roman mythology, Roman mythology is filled with stories of the gods coming down to mankind, usually to hook up with some beauty. Okay? They were nasty. The gods were nasty. Okay? And usually it was there was some sort of sexual reason that they in their stories became human, right? But the gods were the idea of the gods would come down and pretend to be human and do horrible things to human beings, right? I think some of that plays into this idea that Paul is countering that idea. See, like the gods you Romans believe in, look what they do. The true God comes to earth to be a servant to humans so they can be redeemed. Now this humility of Jesus is on display in its ultimate form when we see his humility in death. Look at verse 8. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As if the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe taking on human physicality was not humbling enough. If it wasn't humbling enough that he came into the world through a natural birth and had to have his diaper changed, Jesus is willing to take this humility all the way to the cross, all the way to death. See, by nature, most of us do not like humility. It is not a natural thing for us to like humility. We certainly do not like it when that humility means we have to give up our rights or maybe even our lives. Think about when Jesus is being arrested. Matthew 26. In the garden, come to arrest Jesus. Peter's swinging his sword around like a crazy man. What does Jesus tell him? He says, do you not know that if I wanted, my father would send more than 12 legions of angels to my defense. Now I want you to think about this. I want you to think back to your Old Testament. There's this little story in the Old Testament. And there's this nasty Assyrian army. And they're coming over to attack Israel. There's 185,000 of them. That's a big army. That's a lot. That's more than Russia sent into Ukraine. It's a big army. And God sends how many angels to wipe out the Assyrian army? One. He sends one angel and it takes out 185,000 Assyrians. Jesus is saying, 
So, so history tells us that the average Roman legion was about 6,500 people. They varied anywhere from about 5,400 to 10,000. 6,500 was pretty, pretty standard. I don't want to think about it. One angel takes out 185,000 Assyrians. I don't want to imagine what happens to the world when 78,000 extremely angry angels show up <laughs> to defend the God of the universe. Because I don't think anybody survived that. But Jesus did not call forth the heavenly host, did he? Instead, he follows the plan of the Father obediently, even to death on the cross. I think Paul's use of the word obedient has this idea that it's meant to remind us of Jesus in Gethsemane, right? Because Jesus is in Gethsemane prior to the angel comment. And he's in Gethsemane and he's praying, right? And the prayer is so stressful, it's like drops of blood and all this kind of thing. He's like, Father, if there's another way, if there's a plan B, I would like to vote with plan B. But there wasn't. And so Jesus says, not my will, but thine. This word, the word, the idea of obedience reminds us that it's Jesus' choice to humiliate himself even to the point of death, even to death for our sins, because of course he has none as a result. But what do we learn about the application of humility from Jesus? Well, I think we learn that true Christ-like humility means we are willing to put ourselves and our desires and even our rights aside for the good of others. Christ, even when walking the earth, deserved to be worshipped and obeyed as God, did he not? He's God still. He never ceased being God. Instead, he says that he came to serve. He was willing to let that go so he could do what was necessary to bring about salvation. And see, this is hard for us to even think about for ourselves. I mean, we like it when Jesus does. Don't get me wrong. We're happy to have him do it. But we, we don't like to do it because we love our rights. And we also usually think we're right. But see, humility opens the door for us to lay aside our rights for the good of other people. I may have to lay aside my rights, maybe some of my money, in order to help someone else out. Maybe I have to lay aside my rights to some of my time to serve my wife. Maybe I might have to lay aside my rights to simply being right. Because, I mean, obviously I'm always right. Except that time I thought I was wrong, but I was mistaken. <laughs> I might have to lay aside my rights of being right to keep the peace between me and somebody else. I used to think I was had to be right and I had to win every argument. Now I really just need the peace most of the time. Fine, you love me. Great. That, that's wonderful. Awesome. That's great.
most of our acts of humility aren't going to lead to anyone's death like they did for Jesus. But really, do you have to win that argument? Or can you just let it go and maintain harmony? Do you have to have it your way right away? Can you just let those people have it their way? Who cares? The kinds of people that I described at the beginning of this sermon, they could not lay aside their own desires for control and to have it their way long enough to even see someone else's point of view. They were the opposite of humility. You see, this runs completely counter to the majority of the messaging our culture sends. All you have to do is watch a few ads, right? And the message is always something like, well, you deserve this. Whether it's luxury or do whatever or to have your way or to be better looking or whatever it is. And constantly in our culture, in, every, in the media and social media, and all, it's always reinforcing this idea that your number one priority should be you. It's all about you. And then along comes Jesus. God himself as a human. And his messaging is that we should be willing to relinquish our self-centeredness to serve others. To put others as at least as important as ourselves. So he doesn't say, you know, just treat yourself like a piece of dirt. He doesn't say that. But to care about others' interests. But imagine a family or a church or any group where everyone is just more interested in helping others than what they need than getting their own way. Man, that's pretty cool. That makes for a pretty amazing home and an amazing church and an amazing workplace for them. Now, in the midst of all that, I want to give a word of caution. Okay? Right? Because every, every coin has another side. Humility is the way of Jesus. But we understand that the way of Jesus is lived out in a sinful world of sinful people. And as I found out in those first few years of ministry, some people are just so determined to control things that they are willing to go to almost any length to get their way. And the Bible also has something to say about that. It's found in 3 John. Now, 3 John is not a letter we go to very often. Right? When was the last time you heard a sermon on 3 John? Not in 20 years if you've been attending here because I've never preached on 3 John. Or second John, right? You need to do that. But let's go with John writes. Now you gotta remember, this is John. What's John the apostle of? The apostle of love, right? And he's the one that talks about love. For God so loved the world. And you read first John, you know, by this we love, we love the brother, love, 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 love. Right? John's always talking about love. That's awesome. Look what he writes. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, now is that humility? No, that's the opposite of humility, right? Does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, taking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. And he also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. 
Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Now that's John's really nice way of telling you Diotrephes is evil. <coughs> Why is Diotrephes evil? Because he wants to control everything in the church and have his way about everything. He's not humble. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Diotrephes was not a humble guy. He wanted to control the church, and he wanted to control the message. And John, the apostle, remember, who's mostly known for talking about love, says that when it gets there, he's going to call it out. The Diotrephes was evil as witnessed by his actions. And people like Diotrephes destroy churches and hurt people. You know, looking back at some of the Diotrephes I've encountered over the years, those folks should have been called out. But we, for some reason, are very unwilling to call out people in their sin, even when it affects the life of Christ's body, the church. But apparently, the apostle of love was willing to call them out when it was this bad. He wasn't calling them out because, you know, he didn't get the color carpeting he wanted in the church or, you know, Diotrephes wanted hymns and you know somebody else wanted psalms. Something like that. This guy was causing major disruption in the church. It wasn't a difference of opinions. It wasn't a place where humility was going to solve the problem. This guy was an actual genuine. He was breaking the unity of the church. He was hurting other people. And in that case, he had to be called out. Now, I want to finish Unless you think there's no ultimate benefit from humility. But Paul tells us that Christ's earthly humility has led to his exaltation to his proper place in the cosmos. Because humility is a path to exaltation. Look at the last three verses, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Jesus obeys unto death so that we can be redeemed. But he didn't stay dead. He rose. He conquered death. And now he's exalted. His humiliation results in him now being of the highest rank in the cosmos. It is at the name of Jesus that all who have ever lived will someday bow. Every being in the universe that's ever lived, living, dead, or spirit being, Angels, demons, all other forms of spiritual beings that might be out there. They will bow in the name of Jesus, who is Lord of all. That day is coming. So we sometimes think of humility as being a basement. As if somehow, if I'm being humble, it makes me less than. But in fact, true humility results in us being commended and exalted by God at the proper time. Look at what Peter explains in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Right? It's a group thing. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I definitely don't want to do things that God opposes. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God opposes the proud, but the humble says he will exalt at the proper time. Well, I'm not sure what that time is. It might be 
some point in this life when something you did in humility comes back to reward you. That's awesome. Maybe it's going to be in eternity when you hear the well done, good and faithful servant. That's awesome also. A lot of times I think it might simply be when someone you took the time to help or, or you, you just, you know, were humble with them and that sort of thing when they needed it and you gave them a hand up or some help out or whatever and they just come back later to thank you. But humility is the way not only to be like Jesus, but to be commended by Jesus. And I want to be commended by Jesus. When we all act out of a heart of humility before one another, every aspect of our relationships will improve. Seeing others is more important than ourselves, being willing to, to seek the good of others instead of demanding what very well might be rightfully ours, is all part of the path to Christ-likeness. It's Jesus' humility that precedes his exaltation. And it's from him as the model of humility that we learn how to rightly relate both to God and to other people. Let's pray. Father, it is for certain that this world could use a lot more folks with a, with a humble heart like Jesus. Jesus even describes himself as, as humble and lowly. Come to him because his burden is easy. So Father, we uh, think of Jesus as the, not only the author and finisher of our faith, but as the model for how to live. And that is a life of humility where we treat others' interests as more important than our own, and that we're willing to lay aside our rights Help us to be more like Jesus in every relationship we have. Give you the glory for it, and we look forward to.